Okay, this is a first. This episode is actually worse than I remembered. Although in truth, the only reason I remember this episode at all, really, is because of the Q Continuum Trilogy. Ever read those books? If you haven't, I recommend it. They're good stuff. A few flaws, a few issues here and there, but really good stuff. It's probably one of the better Q books I've ever read. Read, and I've read several. Oh, where do I begin? This is written by Edward Laxo, who never wrote, wrote anything else. Directed by Marvin Chomsky. Now, I want to say something about that. Mr. Chomsky here, uh, Mr. Marvin. Is that an O? He's, <laughs> uh, he's not a bad director. He's done other decent works. He also directed All of Yesterdays and Day of the Dove. Mr. Loxo is not a good writer, by m many accounts. If you've seen some of his the list of other things he's written, it's not good stuff. So I think we can at least point to one of the major problems with this episode. The other major problem I'd like to sh save talking about for just a minute, if that's okay. So we start off with the premise. Okay, we've beamed down to Planet Soundstage. It really looks terrible, by the way. At least I will give absolute credit for the work and effort put in Season 1 and Season 2 to make Planet Soundstage look as decent as they could. You know what I mean? There's, there's, there's that shading of quality between acceptable and bad, where you try to make it look better. You, you, you only have so much. You know, it's the whole uh, person of a sousier kind of a thing. But you do what you can to liven it up and use decent lighting and try to do something with the backdrop and maybe have a little bit of, you know, doodads here and here to help flesh it out. They've just kind of stopped doing that, probably because of the everything that is the Season 3 problem. <laughs> this is made even funnier. Well, I, I mean, I, I just, I have to comment on this. I know this is going to sound churlish. The UFP flag is hysterical. I have literally seen better quality flags in terms of, like, the print material and whatnot, and in terms of the literal physical material it's made out of, in addition to the tiny little thing. I mean, that is literally the kind of thing that I would walk into a Kinko's 20 years ago and be like, hey... Uh, I'd like a pennant made, and they give me this really super cheap $5 job. That's what that looks like. It looks like crap. And I know that's a weird thing to bang on about, but I'm pointing that out because it's an individual-specific thing that is probably going to stick out in your memory that I can point to to explain what I mean when I say this episode looks like crap. It's not just that it has a terrible script and terrible acting by everyone involved. Even just the sets are not impressive. Even just the props are bad. Like I said, you have to do something special to be a lamentation, to really get into that very, very bottom percent of the percent. The sets aren't the thing. It's just, it, it's, well, it's everything. I'm just going to go ahead and give my reasoning right now. Everything is why this goes into the bottom. This is a Drek episode, but each of the individual points of Drek are worse than usual. So it's just, it's Drek that is magnified upon itself. We see all these people who have apparently committed suicide. Okay. Naturally, we're going to try and explain what happened. So let's think about this. Well, obviously they were attacked. What? No, they committed suicide. Indeed. So clearly the suicide was induced. Naturally. But the kid, what would induce the suicide? It could be all kinds of things. Well, whatever it is spared the children, indeed. And because the children are spared, that explains why they're in on this. You know, they're either trying to avoid punishment or they're being offered something. Aha! So that explains the kid's behavior and why they're not reacting to their parents' suicide. 
You ever heard me talk about logic leaps before? I'll recover it in brief. A leap in logic is when someone, when, when the author needs the characters and the audience to, to know what's going on, so they have them make these, these assumptions. Now, a good logical progression of figuring out and deducing what's going on will go step, 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 or will have some kind of evidence to back it, or it'll simply show on screen and you don't need to explain anything. You know, these are all good ways to do this. But a leap in logic is when someone's like, wait a minute, I just got a paper cut in my hand. I didn't really. This actually happened two days ago. There you go. So there you go. So two days ago, because I actually still have the scar, I got a paper cut in my hand. And that was caused by the paper, which itself was cold. So logically, the temperature drop is causing the blood to come out of my skin. But it's not a true logic leap unless that's actually true that the wild presumption is actually accurate. This is actually a really common problem in writing. It usually happens when the writer just needs the characters to get from point A to point B, and they're like, here, and they just have them make assumptions which are true. It's, it's even worse when they automatically assume those assumptions are true, which they don't do in this episode, so I'll give the episode that credit. Then... So I mentioned that everything's bad in this episode. So the sets are bad, right? Okay. The, the writing is already bad. Um, let's cover acting. Leonard Nimoy's usually a bright spot in these things, but Spock is barely in this episode, and might as well not be, other than being the rock for Kirk. Insert shipping joke here. Go ahead, I don't actually care. But I've seen Shatner act well. I have. I've seen Shatner act well in this show. This is not one of those times. You ever heard of the Shatner thing? Like, everyone, there's a, a cadence that people tend to make fun of when it comes to mimicking certain people. Now, when people do that, when they're doing that kind of, you know, I'm look, uh, impression of someone, they usually exaggerate it to the point where that's the only thing. So if you hear, you hear it, what you're not hearing is what they sound like. You're hearing an exaggeration based on it. It's usually done for various comedic effect, but the fact remains. They're trying to be like, hey, this is totally what they sound like, and it's actually not. One second. There we go. Sorry. Literally just the sun came out, and I had to adjust for that all of a sudden, so I, I wanted to adjust that. The illusion's broken. Sorry, guys. Appropriate for the episode. Shatner's thing is, we must go to the thing here. Right, right? You've, you've heard that kind of mimicry. I would be willing to bet money that that comes from this episode. Look at the way he acts in the cave. It is the way that I'm acting right now. And again, no offense to Shatner. Like I said, I've seen the man act, and I mean, you know, other comments I could make there, which I, you know, I just realized. I need to not comment, because some people assume if I like an actor that I'm automatically totally okay with everything they say ever. You ever have that happen? Like, I said something one, nice about uh, Will Wheaton once, and I got attacked over that because of something. I don't even remember what it was. Will Wheaton had taken some political stance. Someone was against that stance, and so they came after me for saying Will Wheaton was all right. Like, that's a thing. I need to be more careful about that because Lord knows he can't say anything positive about anyone without automatically being labeled a part of a side. Right? No. Instead, what I'm just going to say is I'm actually pretty decent with Shatner, especially his acting talent when he's actually trying and has some actual work being put into doing it, especially when he's doing a comedy. He's good at comedy. I do think that. This is none of those cases. This is Drek. This is the kind of thing that 
my sister, who is not an actress, has acted better than. And that is not a joke. In fact, I hope by the time this video goes live, something that includes her acting in it will have also gone live. It's not gone live as of this moment, obviously. And then the sun goes away again. Whatever. As long as we're not seeing any green particles, I guess we're fine. So that happens. Then we have coconut and ice cream, which is the worst sin of all, and that's why this episode gets a lamentation. Coconut and ice cream? Why would you do that? Actually, funny f fact, because I feel like talking about anything other than the episode for a second. I came to the discovery recently that a little bit of coconut flavoring can really add to something. Uh, there's this type of chicken I made where you let the sliced almonds sit in some coconut milk for a while and then bake them along with the chicken, and the, the flavor added. It was really good. It was good. But raw coconut just getting stuck in your teeth and all that? Bleh, no thank you. Either way, instead the kid asks for chocolate, pistachio, and peach ice cream. Why does Chapel react to that like that's a thing? You know what I mean, right? Like in fiction, especially in Star Trek, someone will say something and there'll be this reaction shot. And the reaction shot is... Like if someone says, and then I'll kill them all, and then they do the... Or if they're revealing that they're evil, you know, like, oh, of course not, I, I would have never killed him unless he didn't give me a choice to, choice to. He gave me no choice but to kill him. And then they do the, the reaction shot. That's the exact same kind of shot she uses for him asking for ice cream of chocolate, pistachio, and peach. This is a good time to mention the editing on this episode is actively terrible. Ignoring the obvious problems which anybody with half a brain will tell you about, the editing was mulched in the editing process, so a lot of scenes are actually kind of spliced wrong compared to what they should have been, and some scenes were cut that shouldn't been, and other scenes were not cut that should have been. If you ever wonder why there's really long scenes that just kind of drag for some reason, it's because they were supposed to be closer to this. This is also why Kirk randomly and suddenly knows the Gorgon's name, despite it not being mentioned at any point in the script prior to that point. And yes, I know that in the original script, he does actually ask the kid for its name, after he says they should summon it. This is a crap script. What do you want from me, guys? Like I said, I'm trying to really show my evidence for why this one manages this. <clears throat> so then, Tommy just kind of goes to the bridge, with a guard, I might add, and then the girl comes up to the bridge with a guard, and they take over the ship. I'm sorry, this hurts my brain just to talk about it. The kids take over the ship. This might actually be the worst ship taking over thing. No, I'm going to take that back. There's one other one that might be worse than We're not there yet. It's later in TOS. You know the one I'm talking about. But this actually surpasses Rascals in my book. This is stupid. You're telling me that this group of six kids can take over the ship because... Okay, moving on, moving on, moving on. We've already talked about how pathetic Starfleet security is and how Odo would have an aneurysm at watching this. That would be funny. Okay, hey, Odo, uh, since you're bored in the Great Link, um, we brought you some videos. These are historical documents of the old Enterprise. Oh, this should be interesting. Let's see how they did it back in the day. Oh, my God! How did he get into engineering without anyone even noticing? That's the most important part of the ship. Ah, and he just starts having an aneurysm. Or a shapeshifter equivalent of an aneurysm. So they take over the ship. They fight, Scotty fights them for about three seconds. This is another. This is when we come into another bad example of writing, or example of bad writing. Excuse me. Let me say that correctly. You know how there's a legend. You know how the legend is sometimes literally 
literal, like word for word. Like imagine if sometime in the times after this one, there will be a hand from the right that shall reach out to grasp the metal cup, and in so doing it shall sip of the seltzer water. Let me give you an example of a prophecy or a legend done correctly. From Dragon's Maw. I'm not going to explain the rest of that reference. Those of you who, are, who recognize it can get it. But that's how you do that. <sighs> anyway, so then they beam down the guards. <sighs> this is so many levels of stupid, I'm not sure how to say about this. By the way, this is even stupider on analysis mode. So they're out in space, and they tell them, beam down the guards. Okay. Isn't there any piece of equipment anywhere that should tell them that they're beaming them out into space? Even if we're to presume that the kids have gotten to this guy, which there is no indication that they have, why is this a thing? They just beam them out into space. There's so many things wrong with this. You have to have a location you're beaming them to, right? Like, let me try and explain this a little bit. You're orbiting a planet, you want to beam down. So what you do is you scan for the exact spot, and you beam to that spot, right? You scan for the spot, find the spot, use the whatever you need to mark it as this is the... Um, oh, what's the term? It's not relative value, it's like absolute value. And so you beam down to an absolute value. So even though... Because remember, the ship's moving. If you beamed down to a relative value, where you're beaming down to is changing every second as the ship is moving, Right? They're not beaming down to a relative value. They're beaming down to an absolute value, which is marked. Okay? So they need to scan, mark, send. None of these steps happen. They just beam them out into what is apparently a relative value of space. It's like they just said, oh, beam them X miles that way. Which is nonsensical on every level and, I might add, not how the transporter has been used up to this point in the show. Remember what I mentioned about Miss Fontana saying how both Friedberger and uh, Arthur did not know Star Trek at all, and how several other people corroborate that, including Robert Justman? I think we're starting to see the scenes there. Anyways, so they beam them out into space. But check this out. This gets even better. So not only have we just killed two red shirts to prove the situation serious, never brought up again, as per usual red shirt rule. But check this out. There's two other red shirts that die in this episode, too. Remember the security detachment that they're going to beam back up? Well, they're not there. They're back on the planet. And you're thinking, oh, well, they can just go back and get them at the end of the show. Yeah, they probably could. But pay attention to the sequence of events. What happens is the ship never mentions them. The show never mentions them again. And when the episode ends, lay in a course for Starbase 4. What? But if I was to be really generous, I would say that they could go to Starbase 4, drop off the kids then go back to the planet and hope they haven't cannibalized each other by then, because I'm not sure what the distances are involved. <laughs> Imagine what's going through the security guard's head. Where'd the ship go? What do we do? Is there any food here? It's just, it's just rocks. There's no housing because we can't afford it in sounds, planet soundstage. Uh, no, the problem is the script didn't think about that. So it's never brought up again, because it's a redshirt death. It's there to be like... And then never be brought up again, right? That's the whole point of a redshirt death. Why I hate the concept so much. This then leads to the reveal. The, the uh, okay, can I just mention the awful recitation? 
I okay. I t- I actually I mentioned I mentioned Rascals earlier on purpose. I'm actually stuttering because of how bad this episode is. I mentioned Rascals earlier, right? One of the reasons I mentioned that was because one of the problems with that episode, in my opinion, is that they have child actors. Do keep in mind that there's just so many limitations when it comes to children actors, and for good reason. I want to stress. Uh, you should, children actors should not have to go through the rigors of what an adult actor has to go through. Duh. But the problem is children actors also don't have the wealth of experience and ability to act like adult actors, at least hypothetically, do, which means they probably suck at their job. The only one who does a decent job at all is the younger girl. I can't remember her name, but I looked up the actress. She apparently did a lot of acting as a child actor in that era, like just dozens of different show uh, things where she showed up as a, as a one-off, you know, playing the kid of someone. But those are the exceptions, not the rule. So, their recitation, Friendly Angel, come to me, is actively irritating and takes way too long, and is poorly done in black. That then leads us to the bad guy showing up, Gorgon, from Q Continuum. I, I mean, from this episode. Oh no, it's an old guy in a moo-moo! Alright, first of all, he looks ridiculous. We get the best shot of it right at the end, right before he starts melting. He's in this giant, weird thing that just balloons straight out. He looks like he's one of those little gumdrops on top of a cake. You know what I mean? It's a terrible look for him. But check this out. That is Melvin Belly? I'm going to go with Belly. Melvin Belly. Now, I've actually heard that name before, and there is a chance you have too. He was actually a really famous attorney back in the day. He was the defender of Jack Ruby and Mick Jagger and a bunch of other things. He actually was a really good attorney, too, a defense attorney. And that's theoretically why they brought him on the show. Now, I've mentioned many times that figuring out the history of TOS is just kind of like... Because who knows what the what's the actual truth, right? In this case, we have two directly conflicting accounts. Some people have flat out said that Friedberger was actually a friend of Mr. Belly, and that's why he was brought onto the show. Mr. Friedberger himself has said that he brought him on the show in order to attempt to boost ratings because he was an extremely famous attorney, and he was. It's also possible these are not mutually exclusive, and both of these are the reason why he was brought on the show. Now, I looked all that up in advance, as I usually do, and I was like, you know what, I'm going to spare judgment, because I haven't seen this episode in literally decades, plural. So, I'm not actually going to judge this one until I watch it, and oh my god, he's a terrible actor. Oh my god. You could just see how much difficulty he is having in remembering his lines. It does not help that his dialogue is terrible. But I could at least see a good actor trying to inject some flavor and charisma into those lines. I could. He doesn't. He's a terrible actor. No judgment. He's not an actor. Once again, I find myself reminded of the fact that my sister is a better actor than this person who has been in Star Trek. That just feels strange to say that, but it's true. Every single person who is in the Lorewalker Theater, this is not an exaggeration, is a better actor than this man. And in many cases, I was just pull- reaching out to anybody with a mic who, who had decent quality and an interest in the series who was willing to be involved. 
And they still did a better job than this Yahoo. This guy is terrible. It, I can't even put it into words. I mentioned the bad dialogue. Call the beast if... Th this is my truncated version of his lines. Call the beast if they resist. Allow me to explain to you what the beast is. If they resist, call the beast like you did before. That's the three chunks of his dialogue right next to each other there. In that order. What the hell are they doing? What happens now is the worst scene in the episode, in my opinion. It's just this really, really long, dragging scene on the bridge. As they all just kind of stand around, and we just keep cutting back to Sulu and his swords, and then we cut to Uhura and her age, and we cut to Sulu and his swords, and we cut to Spock, and then we cut to Kirk, and then we cut to the kids, and we cut to Sulu, and we cut to the church, and, and it just keeps happening. It just keeps going on and on and on and on and on, and I don't even understand why, other than the fact that I actually know exactly why editing, as I already mentioned. This is, this scene just drags. By the way, should I mention that Spock has been able to resist uh, mental mental stuff before? Illusions. Uh, mind, mind sifting, the mind sifter that the Klingons had? He is totally taken in by this until he actually takes a moment to concentrate and push through the, the whatever the Gorgon is doing. Now, I want to point that out because Spock, Spock, with his incredible discipline and mental abilities, has to take moment to do this, and Kirk just has a freak out on the turbo lift, and he's fine. Right. Oh yeah, I should mention that too. Kirk then goes into the turbo lift. Actually, I'm sorry, before I go any forward, there's this bit where Kirk starts talking in reverse, and so he goes to Leslie. That's Leslie, by the way, if you, if you want to put a face to the name I've been saying since like season two or season one. He's been on the show quite a bit. That's Leslie. So why isn't Leslie saying anything? Like, even if someone walked up to you and said, You'd think you'd respond in some way other than just... Which is what Leslie does. What? Of course, we know the answer is because Leslie wasn't being paid to speak because the budget was massively cut. But, yet, but then Kirk has his freak out. I'm losing command. I'm losing command! <laughs> And what we have is actually the best scene in the episode, in my opinion. And I am not kidding about that. Kirk and the Turbolift is just Shatner going to full ham. This is full Shatner ham right here. This is just... <gasps> I'm losing the ship. I'm losing the ship. Like, and the way he does it is hysterical. I know that's not the intent, but it still makes this the best scene in the whole episode for me by a huge margin. It, 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 oh my god, he's just all over the set pieces. And the whole time Spock's just standing there, and I'm, th I'm, I'm just waiting, because I had this weird memory that Spock did, you know, this. He's like, alright, don't worry, I got you. No, he just stands there until Kirk figures it out on his own. What? <sighs> I mean, this is the same Kirk who managed to resist a biological, chemical, addictive, slash, mind control operate thing because he loved his ship so much. Twice. The Paradise episode and Alana Troyes. So then they go down to engineering to fight Scotty and two geeks in, in engineering. I wanna, I'm going to say that one more time in case you missed that. Kirk 
who one of his traits is winning fights, I'm not even joking about that, and Spock, who is a superhuman who also tends to win fights and can nerve pinch people, lose in a very brief scuffle to Scotty and two other random yahoos. What? Then Chekhov shows up and threatens to kill them unless they go to the brig, which naturally leads to Scott to to Spock, excuse me, and Kirk overpowering them and beating them. That's Chekhov and two security personnel. <sighs> at this point, my tolerance for the episode was gone. But I have to mention two more things here right at the end. First of all, why does Kirk keep trying to talk to people? Like, he keeps trying to reason with someone. You'd think at some point along the lines he would get a little wise to what's going on, and just as soon as he sees someone on approach with a kid nearby, he'd phaser them immediately. You have a stun setting. Why'd you shoot the kids on the bridge earlier? We here at the Lore Runner do not approve of shooting kids on the bridge. Seriously, just take the phaser, set it to stun. No, instead he puts up with nonsense for like five minutes. Oh my god. So then they defeat Chekhov, and, and then Kirk goes to the bridge. Now, I want you to pay attention to the way I'm saying this, because he goes to the bridge, and for some reason, all the other kids show up. Then Spock shows up, and he's like, here, summon the Gorgon. This is the first time we hear, the, the only time, actually, we hear this thing's name, I believe, but it's definitely the first time. Then Kirk's like, go ahead and show the pictures. What pictures? This was never brought up before, and is yet another problem with the editing and the script editing. So we've got the video editing and the script editing, both of which are having issues here. The pictures show the kids and their dead parents. In the interest of fairness, that makes perfect sense. That kind of immediate visual contrast will help to shock someone into realizing what they're looking at, especially if they haven't been processing it. And that does make the Gorgon lose all his power over them, and so he melts. Can I share something that I found out while I was researching this episode? The performance by Mr. Belly was so bad that they insisted on adding that vocal echo and more of the filter effects or the filter effect at all, I'm not 100% sure which, in order to try and distort it. What I'm trying to say is that it sounds like, based on the original version, that he was just going to appear there, in the outfit, as if he was standing there. You know, no, no vocal distortion, no visual effect, he's just standing there. And his performance was so bad, they blew money. I remind you, money is really tight right now on trying to disguise that. They failed. Money well spent. This is a threat episode. The threat has to be overcome, defeated. That's what they do. And they successfully do so by convincing the kids that their parents are dead. Have I made my point? And I mean this sincerely. No hyperbole for a second. I'm dropping all, all, all the... You know, I, I try to put a little bit into my presentation because I am still trying to entertain in addition to provoke thought and discussion. But I'm going to drop all that for a second. This might be one of the worst episodes of Trek in terms of function that I've ever seen. Uh, function's the wrong word. Let's go with execution. Every step and stage of making a television episode, from the lighting to the set design to the prop design and usage to the script to the script design, to the dialogue of the script, to the acting of the main characters, to the acting of the guest stars, to the visual effects. Um, I'm probably missing a few here. Every single thing. Oh yeah, to the editing of the script 
add to the editing of the final product. I knew I was missing at least one there. All of this is drek. This is one of the worst produced episodes I have ever seen. This is insane. There's episodes that offend me more, or are more disgusting, or are more objectionable. But this might actually be the most objectively worst episode of Star Trek that I have currently encountered. And that is why this deserves a lamentation. Because this is awful. This is going right at the bottom of the list for me. And I am curious if it will be surpassed. There's two other episodes that might surpass this one. You know both of them if you know anything about TOS. We're not to either of them yet. We will be soonish. So we will see. <sighs> I hope I've done my job properly here, guys. I'll see you next time, as so we do. And so we do. And so we